Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yarga. In Vienna in the 1920s, a series of contractors, architects, and builders met a very difficult employer. The employer, who was overseeing the house of one of his sisters, had recently been dismissed from a teaching post for hitting a child. As the employer focused his attention on the construction of the house, he tormented the builders over every detail. One uh, builder exasperated one exasperated locksmith said uh, quote does the difference of one or two millimeters really matter to which the employer and supervisor the austrian philosopher ludwig wittgenstein shouted yes if wittgenstein's architectural methods and beliefs have not been influential there might be something in his philosophy to be recommended to literary critics a recent book by toro moy revolution of the ordinary literary studies after wittgenstein austin and cavell returns to three 20th century figures in ordinary language philosophy to renew how we think about style and argumentation Published by the University of Chicago Press, Revolution of the Ordinary brings together a diverse archive of primary sources from the Argentine writer Julio Cortazar to the 1970s TV show All in the Family. I am excited to welcome Toral to the podcast today. Toral is James B. Duke, Professor of Literature and Romance Studies and Professor of English Philosophy and Theater Studies at Duke University. Toral's previous books include Sexual Textual Politics, Feminist Literary Theory, and Simone de Beauvoir, The Making of an Intellectual Woman. She has served as research professor at Norway's National Library for the last five years. Welcome to the podcast, Toro. Thank you. Let's start with terms. What is ordinary language philosophy, and what is the shared approach of these three thinkers, Ludwig Wittgenstein, J.L. Austin, uh, Stanley Cabell? Wow. Well, I wrote a whole book trying to convey 
the answer to that, so it's hard to do it quickly. We should say that in this podcast, when we say the name Wittgenstein, we mean his later philosophy. There's a well-known split between the Tractatus, his early work, and philosophical investigation, his later work. And of course, we could spend all evening discussing, as people do, whether in fact they are you know, represent a real turnaround or whether there's a continuity or whatever, but they are different. And Wittgenstein himself thought they were different. So in this podcast, Wittgenstein means the Wittgenstein of philosophical investigations, just to be totally clear on that. Because, and what is ordinary language philosophy? I think that to begin, what, what might... For me, there's a stronger connection between Wittgenstein and Cavell than there is between Wittgenstein and Austin. Austin famously never quoted Wittgenstein except once or something. And um, But for Cavell, Cavell, when he reads Wittgenstein, finds that Austin is also a philosopher doing the same thing. So it's a kind of triangle whereby um, it's easy to see that Cavell is doing something really original with the later Wittgenstein. And then he also shows us exactly why Austin is relevant here. So now to answer your question, um, I think the key move that all these thinkers do is to make us try to reject the idea that language is representation. You know what, (laughs) traditionally, people have said, well, what is language? Let us begin with names, naming. And what is it that connects a name to the thing? And there you then have Platonism, nominalism, deconstruction says there's nothing that connects it, but that's also a a version of representation, except now under erasure, as it were. What Wittgenstein does most radically, already in the first paragraph of his investigations, is to show that this cannot possibly be a good starting point for trying to figure out what language is. And what does he suggest instead? Well, <laughs> this really, I ought to spend four weeks on this, but essentially that language is not representation. Language is use. And what does use mean? It means all the things we say and say to each other in all kinds of contexts every day. Use is therefore not an abstract system. It's imbricated in practices. So use is when I, okay, there's a new practice we are engaging in now, namely podcasting while staring at Zoom. That would be a new kind of language game, Wittgenstein would say. There are things we can say and do in these contexts that maybe we would never say or do or do in the same way if we were face to face 
over a drink in a bar, for example. So use language as practice, as individual speech acts is Austin's word, the fact that it's something people do together based not just on a set of abstract signifiers or words looking for meanings, but imbricated in practices so that for Wittgenstein, he coins the term language game to try to make us see that language means nothing unless there are human practices sustaining and giving meaning to them. But language also helps us to see those human practices so that it's not like language names everything and that it's nothing but names. It's that language is a way of being in the world with others in practice. So, um, and naming is one practice, but it's only one. So that Wittgenstein is really wonderful in that he doesn't reject representation as such. He says, of course, we sometimes name things, but we also pray and thank and curse or discuss architectural drawings or act in a play or preach or whatever. And these are other language games. And, and this is sounds so simple. It has such enormously far-reaching ramifications. But I would say that's what the three that's the starting point for what we what what we call modern ordinary language philosophy that term was also used in oxford in the 50s but in a slightly different way so i'm not i'm, I'm saying the tradition after cavell austin and wittgenstein today is what i'm talking about so say we're moving from language as names and representation to language as action and expression as use that's excellent and i i think your your answer gives a flavor for the the kind of lucid and perceptive analysis of of philosophy throughout um this book in The Revolution of the Ordinary, you discuss a famous passage from Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations about five red apples. In the passage, <laughs> Wittgenstein is responding to an account by St. Augustine about his first memories of language acquisition. Um, can you share uh, Wittgenstein's take on this scenario and talk us through how you unpack Wittgenstein's uh, analysis of the five red apples. Well, it's interesting. You're referring to the very first paragraph in Philosophical Investigations. And in a way, and what he does there is he begins with a long quote from St. Augustine's Confessions, which Wittgenstein admired enormously. So he doesn't begin because he has it in for St. Augustine. And what he begins with is a moment of, since it's from the Confessions, it's a memoir, as it were. And St. Augustine is trying to tell us how he once learned to speak and what he writes. Um, uh, he, he, this is the quote from St. Augustine. When grown-ups named some object and at the same time turned towards it, I perceived this, and I grasped that the thing was signified by the sound they uttered since they meant to point it out. 
and there's more. But here you have what has later become what Wittgensteinians call the Augustinian picture of language. And it is shared by a lot of very many, a ton of different views of language that you can twist it in various ways. But essentially, and I'm cutting a long story very short here, um, Wittgenstein summarizes like uh, summarizes the Augustinian picture like so. He writes, these words, it seems to me, give us a particular picture of the essence of human language. It is this, the words in language name objects, sentences are combinations of such names. So we have the naming theory here. Then Wittgenstein goes on. In this picture of language, we find the roots of the following idea. Every word has a meaning. The meaning is correlated with the word. It is the object for which the word stands. That's the clearest and most beautiful summary of just about all language theory up to Wittgenstein's moment. You can run it through Plato, who thinks that the ultimate guarantee of meaning is the idea in the sky, to the um, logical positivists who are trying desperately to find a way of as it was cementing the word to a unit in the world. But all of them are looking for this connection between the word. And here it's important to see that it will be a big theme for Wittgenstein, that the individual word is here without question taken to be the unit we should work on. Whereas if you shift and say, oh, meaning arises in use, then use is not necessarily limited to the individual word. As you know, my example with the bullfighting dictionary will show, you can look up the word until you go blue in the face and it doesn't help you because you don't understand the use. So we'll come to that. But so here then, Wittgenstein is getting ready to really give us already in his first paragraph the beginning of his radical attack on the understanding of language in so much uh, philosophy until his moment. Uh, Wittgenstein says, Augustine doesn't mention any difference between kinds of words. And note, difference. Wittgenstein thinks that he, he thought of giving his book an epigraph, namely, I'll show you differences from Lear. But obviously, in King Lear, the context is so different, it's not actually a good epigraph for this book. But differences is precisely what Wittgenstein is after, he once said, some, said to someone, one of his students, that um, Hegel, I think I'm getting this right, Hegel was trying to show that things that seem different are essentially the same, whereas I want to show that things that seem to be the same are really different. <laughs> so uh, I may have botched that quote, but uh, so the point is, if you say that language is names and so on, Wittgenstein says, hey, but there are differences between kinds of words. And then he writes, someone who describes the learning of language in this way is, I believe, 
thinking primarily of nouns like table, chair, bread, and of people's names, and only secondarily of the names of certain actions and properties, and of the remaining kinds of words as something that will take care of itself which is obviously not very philosophical if you think about it. So if I say, for example, um, notwithstanding his brilliant prose, what is notwithstanding? It is not a name. Or if I suddenly shout, help, then what's that? I'm not naming anything. I'm doing something, right? So Wittgenstein is just saying, hey, can't be just names. Like, there's something wrong with this theory. This is how Wittgenstein gets you to think. He starts by locating a question that you have to feel for yourself. If you read that paragraph too fast, you might nod and say, ah, yeah, of course, that's how we learn to language. Of course, Augustine's quite right. Well, then you don't understand, then you don't feel the force of the um, questioning. So you have to see if you can find it in yourself to say, ah, yeah, never thought of that. Let me look further. So then Wittgenstein gets to his famous counterexample. So Augustine says, I learned to speak by all parents and so on, pointing to things and uttering sounds, and I understood they were names and so on. Now, Wittgenstein says, hey, this is not sufficient. And then he gives a counterexample, which I think is super brilliant because it's so simple that you would think it would work for Augustine. And uh, Wittgenstein's example is, um, I send some, he writes, now think of the following use of language. I send someone shopping. I give him a slip of paper marked five red apples. He takes the slip to the shopkeeper who opens the drawer marked apples. Then he looks up the word red in a chart and finds the color sample next to it. And then he says the series of elementary number words. I assume that he knows them by heart up to the word five and so on. Um, now five red apples, it is an example of a thing that someone desires, that you point to it in the shop, you want this, this is obviously the kind of shop before supermarkets, there's a shopkeeper and a desk and so on. But, um, but the, the thing is, um, so what is Wittgenstein saying here? He says it's in this and similar ways that one operates with words. This sounds utterly bad. For years, this sounded totally baffling to me. Like, what? It's like, do I consult color charts when I say red apple? What is that? Um, so then Wittgenstein crucially imagines a sort of skeptical voice, an interlocutor talking to him, which, who says, but how does he know where and how he is to look up the word red and what he is to do with the word five? Now, that's actually a very good question because he counts to five, he looks up red, but he just opens the drawer for apples. Well, how do you know that? How would you know what to do with that? Why wouldn't I count apple, you know, apple, pear, orange or something and think, so there's something we already know how to do, but long before we can name anything. So Wittgenstein says, 
well, I assume that he acts as I have described. Explanations come to an end somewhere. And then the interlocutor, but what's the meaning of five? The in interlocutor is getting desperate, right? I don't, like, you're not giving me anything here, Wittgenstein. You're just saying, this is what we do. He acts like that, but there's got to be an underlying meaning, a reason. This is the interlocutor desperately trying to ground language in something, a foundation, a reason, a rationality. And Wittgenstein says, no, nothing, no such thing was in question here, only how the word five is used. And this is of course, it's the first paragraph. It usually takes a few years before all this sinks in. But the idea here is there isn't any foundation for use. You won't find a ground. You won't find anything except our willingness to behave in these ways, utter words in these contexts. And that's how we learn them. If you learn to speak, you're not just learning a set of words, you're learning, for example, when to apologize, what to count as a joke, when to, as a little child, to run up to someone and give them a hug and when not to, and utter certain sounds. And the, the knowledge of counting is something that is not just a matter of learning numerals. If you live in a society where they don't know how to count, uh, and there is one I mentioned in my book, a tribe in Brazil somewhere where they just didn't have, they couldn't learn how to count to 10 because they never had more than one, two, and many in their language. So when they were trying to trade with the Portuguese, they got swindled enormously. And when they wanted to learn, they found their forms of life hadn't needed a space for counting. So then we take for granted that we know how to count, but we learned it in specific contexts through use. So that Wittgenstein already in the first paragraph is opening up a vista of a way of thinking of language that's really exciting and new and not that hard, except it's extremely hard to understand what he's doing because he's not given to over-explanation, partly because, as he says, explanations come to an end somewhere. Some things you really need just to see how they work, as it were. It's a little like, when he uses the word games, it's a little like playing, I don't know, learning to play tennis or soccer or whatever. It's not like, it, you can't set, you don't learn it particularly well if you only listen to lectures on the correct tennis form. Sooner or later, I don't play tennis, but I assume you get to a point where you just feel how to lift the arm for the serve. It becomes second nature. It becomes natural to you. And that's how we learn to speak as well. But I suppose everything I said now is just in a way still utterly either incomprehensible or so simple as to think, well, where's the philosophy in this? But it's the beginning of a revolution in philosophy because this will have two effects, a new vision of language and a complete critique of traditional ways of doing philosophy namely by definitions, theories, concepts, rather than by examples. 
What really strikes a chord with me in, in what you're saying is, is language as social practice. I mean, in, in uh, one of the lines that you said, we don't find a ground. And in some ways, we have to turn from our dictionaries to sociality in order to, to locate meaning. Even the way you talk about Wittgenstein as in some ways like provoking a question in an interlocutor. You know, there's a presumed audience, a, a presumed well, social. Always. That's a very good remark because Wittgenstein, in Wittgenstein, there are always an interlocutor who comes in after a double dash. And there are many explicit scenes of instructions, like very early on, there are, I mean, where there's, for example, a child or a student or a set of builders who are to learn something. For Wittgenstein, there is no such thing as a isolated, abstract system of language divorced from speakers. The, for Wittgenstein, Cavell writes somewhere that in his, he feels his philosophy has been from the beginning a philosophy concerned with the other, because language as use cannot by definition be as, as solitary. I mean, if you grew up alone on an island, you just wouldn't learn to speak. That's, uh, that's wonderful. Um, not not growing up on the island, but language <laughs> we is hope not. <laughs> um, I uh, really enjoyed your analysis of the Julio Cortazar um, short story and what it says about language. Can you summarize the short story for us? And well, it's a very uh, short short story. It's two and a half pages in Spanish or in English as well. And it's called Lucas and his classes, I believe. Um, I'm going to get that. Um, yes. Um, and the book is called in English, A Certain Lucas by Julio Cortazar. And um, it's a lot of tiny vignettes where this uh, Lucas is an, uh, a man from Argentina who is in Paris uh, possibly in exile. We don't know anything about that, but he's in Paris um, at this point. And the little story that interests me is he gets a job as a Spanish teacher at the Berlitz Language School in Paris. Now, the director of this school is really a bully from Castilia. That would be the, 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 the most sort of pure heartlands of Spain. And Argentina, as being an ex-colony, you have a little touch of empire and colonies going on in this story. And of course, the director is also a bully. Um, so there, there are all kinds of lovely undertones in this story about sly revolt and domination, the, because the, the director tells Lucas now, no Argentinian accent here. It's got to be pure. It's got to be castizo. It's uh, we can't have any of these colonial stuff accents going on. So Lucas is told by the director to teach some solid central Spanish Spanish. Um, you know, bullfighting and that sort of thing. So Lucas cuts out a piece of a bullfighting review from the uh, newspaper El País. And I checked it. It's a real bullfighting review. It was published in El País on the day uh, Costa says it was and so on. 
And then the students come in and they have their dictionaries and Lucas is, thinks we have to have the direct method of teaching here. So I'm just going to give them this short little paragraph um, about bullfighting and then I'll leave them to translate it. And what happens is the students start really consulting their dictionaries. They look up everything and they exchange dictionaries. They're asking, is your dictionary any better than mine? And so on. And then in the end, they just throw the dictionaries at the wall and leave in pure exasperation. There's only one studious student left who is asking Lucas as when the, the, the director comes in to check on him, the student says, oh, and this master from Salamanca, could that be Fray Luis de Leon, the famous uh, poet uh, from the 16th century? The Baroque anyway. And the thing is, and... Um, uh, they, Lucas never gets to answer, and of course, it's not at all the the maestro de Salamanca is El Viti, who is the famous bullfighter from that area. But the, the I love the story because I have for various reasons had had to try to translate some bullfighting reviews just informally for friends. And it is impossible. It's just, it teaches you that you can look up every word in the best dictionary in the world and you still don't get it. And I'll give you a, just a very, and this supports Wittgenstein's idea that knowing the name and its meaning and so on, still won't get you anywhere when you don't, as it were, you don't have the use. And we don't have the use in English because there isn't much of a bullfighting tradition in the English-speaking country, so we don't have any practices and so on. So I remember, so a fighting bull can weigh up to six, over 600 kilos. It is a fearsome creature. It has very sharp horns. It can easily kill you. And yet these bullfighting reviewers would, for example, say about some bull, it was soso. Now, soso, look up in the dictionary, it says bland, insipid, tasteless. Yeah, it comes running into the arena like a freight train, and you think, what? And then um, what is an insipid bull in that context? Does You have words, but you don't have any understanding. And then they use the word manso, which means gentle, docile, or tame. And then they use the word flojo, which means slack or lazy or cowardly. So you have these insipid, tame and cowardly bulls that seem dangerous enough to you and me, I think. And so we have no idea what those words might mean, unless we also have ideas of what counts as a courageous bull? What is an impressive bull? Well, we have no idea because we don't know anything about the thing, right? We we don't know anything about the practice of bullfighting. And let me put in here, I'm not using this as an example because I'm in favor of bullfighting and I think it's uh, etc. But it was Cortasa's example that is so brilliant because it really is the most you know, it's just is impossible to translate. Even, okay, let's assume you know all about bullfights because there are 
Hemingway did. You know, he wrote about bullfights, but you still can't find the right words in English very easily. But what it what that experience teaches you, at least taught me, is that learning the words you learn to see at the same time. You learn to notice things in the bullfight just because now you're sitting there looking for, oh yeah, like that's supposed to be a tame bull. <laughs> you know, what does that mean? Um, it's little like learning any practice. I also like thinking about the language of high fashion, of haute couture. I heard people discuss different stitches and ways of turning up a hem that left me speechless because I sort of thought, well, you turned it up and there must be that. Oh, no, if you do it in one way, the, the, the fabric will fall in this way and it depends a lot on what kind of fabric you have, etc. I.e., if learning a language is learning to see, learning a language is to learn to be in the world with full attention to its particularity. Therefore, the more attention you pay to language, the more attention you pay to the world, or vice versa, as it were. And the best writers are the best. They are just the best at that. The reason we admire Shakespeare to this day is that he found words for moments and sensations and situations that really were quite stunning and made us see them. That's uh, So that's language as it lighting up the world for us rather than just naming it, you know? Yeah, that's great. And I think um, sports language is perfect. I'm, I'm a sports fan myself. And um, I, I was listening to a podcast and the term meta kept coming up. And of course, I thought meta, you know, means above or, yeah. or something like that. Um, but it's it's increasingly used in sports commentary for as an acronym for most effective tactics available. And so oh, really? I'm just trying to impose this meaning of meta, as in what are the meta narratives or meta strategic things going on? But they were using it in this acronym. Or um... well, and also the thing is, the the best example is of course what I still think of as football, which in the North America they persist in calling so soccer, because I mean that's it's not half as complicated as bullfighting but it is Cortazar didn't have a, a, a soccer story so but the thing is you know fans can um for example offside now fans can debate forever was he offside but I mean if you don't you know you learn what it is to be offside and sooner or later you can see it on the pitch right yeah. but to start with maybe you have no clue and there's a there's a sport that I can't understand at all, namely baseball. It's like a closed book to me, and I never see. I can't literally can't see where where, where the what is it called the, the again? Strike zone. The, the strike ball. Zone. I mean, is it the ball they have or like whatever they? I can't see where the strike zone is. I have no idea whether we hit it or not. It's like terrible. If, but if, that, yeah. If you watch it with a veteran um, baseball watcher, right, they can precisely identify, um, you know, oh, that was just outside of the strike zone. I, I can't see it myself. 
you know. Yeah, but you see, that's an incredible training of the eye to the practice that also then teaches you the language. Yeah. When I lived in England, I once learned to really see a cricket match. Unfortunately, it's too long since I did this. <laughs> I've forgotten again. But it was a revelation. And before that, I didn't understand what they were doing. And suddenly, you know, silly mid-wicket started to make sense. <laughs> Um, but these are, but I mean, we are talking about obvious cases of language interwoven in practice, like in game, actual games, sports. But it's like that in the most simplistic words of every day. You know, you say, "Can I? Could I please have a glass of water?" Is every bit as complicated and depending on forms of life, of ways of being with others, um, and knowing the forms and ways of, and so on. That that what we have been talking about is just a little bit more widespread. Right, right. I often talk with friends who move to the the United States, and they. Um, they, they adapt or they learn certain formulations. Like when um, in the Midwest, when someone says, well, after a long pause, that means they're ending the conversations, you know. Just well ellipses, that means it's over. You know, they're walking. Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there are lots of things. Like I said, it makes you very attuned to the nuances and differences um, this is teaching you differences because there are eons of ways of using well, you know, there's one that we didn't know about until you told us. But you see, um, we have essentially, I have to say, I did, I made an enormous effort to compress some of the key elements of Wittgenstein's vision of language into the beginning of my book. And I uh, do believe that if one spends a little bit of time with that and maybe reads the first 43 paragraphs of the investigations, one will have a good starting point uh, for getting at more in this philosophy. Because obviously, I didn't write about it just because I wanted to talk about language. It's also, and we are very close to it now, it's a kind of revolutionary take on what it is to do theory instead of laying down new terms, finding new concepts, giving them definitions and so on, Wittgenstein, I won't go over that here, but Wittgenstein says you need to begin by the particular case. Look at the particular case and then see that as an invitation to others to see what if they can see what you see in it? It's like for Wittgenstein, even the heaviest of concepts can't get off the ground unless you have examples and practices to sustain it. So if you begin with a concept, I don't know, difference, for example, uh, you're beginning with an abstraction and forgetting how it arose in the practices in the language games where it is at home, as Wittgenstein says. But this is a very long story. And what I'm doing in the book is trying to do three things. 
vision of language, how Wittgenstein, how Wittgenstein thinks, and how it differs from the mo more common structuralist and post-structuralist various modes of use of language. And then how it changes the way you think about uh, how to do theory. And finally, how it changes our views on what's interesting in literary theory, how to read. Those are the three bits. And in between those bits, I have a, an aside about there is one famous prejudice about this kind of uh, philosophy, which is that because it's called ordinary language philosophy, it must favor common sense. And common sense has to be conservative because we've been told that ever since Marcuse and the Frankfurt School. So that must be true, right? And uh, therefore, um, you can't read Wittgenstein if you want to change the world because then you're stuck with common sense. This is, of course, nonsense, as Wittgenstein would say. By the way, your anecdote about Wittgenstein saying, you know, can two millimeters really make a difference? And he says, yes, that does translate into his philosophy where he would rewrite. I mean, he never finished the investigations. He wrote 4,000 versions and tried over and over again to get it just right. And that translates his, his idea that if you get the words right, then you get, that's the thinking and the way you see the world. So it matters. And you shouldn't let those two millimeters go. It's like being sloppy in philosophy as well. That's at least how I think of it. Um, yeah, maybe this would be a good moment to shift towards um, how you're bringing ordinary language philosophy to bear on uh, literary criticism. Um, you talk about um, the legacy of the Swiss linguist Ferdinand de Saussure. Um, can you tell us a little bit what is critique and how might ordinary language philosophy help us nuance or complicate how we do literary criticism? Well, first of all, there are indeed several chapters in my book where I discussed the difference between Saussure and the post-Saussurians. I have a chapter on Derrida and I have half a chapter on Paul de Man. I mean, they are not, they are used as examples uh, of various attitudes. And in the interest of time and progress, unless you want a five hour podcast, I will not go into that. I will just say that I, think that it helps to bring out the difference between these two ways of thinking about language. Um, and I will leave it at that. But what I do want to say um, about literature is, well, there's one thing I have to say. In Saussure, in Derrida, in Lacan, in a lot of French theorists, they build on Saussure's idea of language as a closed system. It's a closed system of phonemes or differences. But if, if language is a closed system of differences, 
then it can be theorized and you can come up with a concept for it. You can give it a description that would cover everything that would be true for language. That is in striking contrast to Wittgenstein and Carell's view, which is if language is use, it's an open-ended series of practices in time and space that you could never theorize. You can't bring, I mean, it's like saying, I can say something that would be true about all utterances, past, present, and future. Impossible. So that's the greatest difference, that therefore in the post-structuralist and adjacent traditions, there's a common to talk about language doing X, Y, and Z. Language does this, or language C turns out to be incapable of doing this, or language fails us, and so on. In the Wittgensteinian tradition, and certainly after Cavell, we have to be honest and say, it's not language that's, uh, fails, uh, that fails, it's us. We are the speakers and we can fail to say what we should be saying. We, we can get our words wrong. We can find that we, re we remain silenced when we shouldn't. We muddle our meanings and we make our way in language for good and for bad. But it's not like language is a struggle because the idea of language failing to grasp reality is, as you can see, a version of representationalism. The idea, almost, it, it's almost as if there's a picture of this rich, nuanced reality that language being coarser and less nuanced somehow fails to grasp. And there's so much wrong with that picture that I don't know where to begin. So I already told you some of that, but essentially we are speakers of the language. Language will go on as long as we are willing to use it. Everyone has the same everyone has the same right to participate in the continuation of the language. So that as speakers of the language, what we learned when we were children is something really mysterious, namely how to go on. Because you see, you think you'd learn certain words and certain phrases as a child. And you do, but you learn them in very specific contexts. And then you grow up and suddenly you travel to Japan and lo and behold, you go or you go to grad school. And now you can say all these things that you couldn't say when you were five. And you are saying things that you have never said before. And you think, how did I know how to say that? It's not that you learned it. What you learned was a practice of the, which means you learned how to go on, on your own. It's a little like first you train to play basketball and thereafter you play it with joy and freedom, right? But it's that's what it is to learn language. And that means it's open-ended. You may Shakespeare certainly did suddenly say something no one ever said before. That's astonishing. And it's not theorizable in advance of the act, you know? So, so to that extent, for me then, if we are speakers of the language, if we participate in 
creating the language by using it. It's a very democratic idea in that, is that there is no one who is more authorized than you to speak. It's like there is no master committee that sort of gets to say what the language is. The language is just this use and use is shared. And of course, in society, some uses get privileged and others get marginalized, but that's not Wittgenstein's idea of language. He, we would just say, well, language works when, if the use works, like people who speak in a certain dialect and in a certain way, communicate perfectly, understand one another, can express love and hate and whatever, then who are we to say that's not a good use, you know? So it's a little like the Hannah Arendt's vision of politics in that politics is the sphere where everyone comes together, where everyone's voice can be heard in the same way language is the use of everyone who speaks that language. However, for literature, you asked, I think of literary works as utterances on a par with as expression and action and intervention. They come out in a, that someone creates them at this in a certain time, in a certain place, which means I find it's very historic. I find it easy to historicize with this kind of vision of language. It's very historical in that meanings change. The specific situation in which you intervene will be decisive for what you say and do. And that's true for literary works too. They just have to, um, they respond to their moment and their time. And it's true for the reader. That's why we need new readings of classics. Like you work on Shakespeare. I wrote a, a whole book on Henrik Ibsen. Um, and of course, in this drama, it's very suitable for ordinary language philosophy because in the theater, what essentially you have are people who speak to one another in front of you in real time. It's very much the quintessential situation of language use. And then they ask, then somehow our challenge is, can we see how it is with these characters in front of us? Um, but yeah. so if language is expression, intervention, action, then it follows that to read it is to try to see, uh, if literature is this, then to read literature is to try to see what the text is trying to do, what it's trying to do with the reader, and then to respond to it. That's what I call reading as a mode of acknowledgement, to acknowledge the text concerns. But that's not enough. You also have to show where you stand in relation to it. Um, as it were, a real effort of understanding coupled with an understanding of where you are in relation to what you now have uncovered. Because you can never separate your reading from yourself. And that means that uh, a lot of Wittgensteinians stress that to work in a Wittgensteinian mode is always to do work on yourself, to try to get clear on where you stand in relation to what you're reading. Give a response, which in itself is a kind of expression and action. That's uh, that's why literary criticism can be so 
both exciting and daunting because in writing something about a work, you show who you are and that can feel risky, right? Absolutely, it can. Uh, yeah, and and daunting, as you say. I, I love um, how, how you're talking about the openness, the contingency, the egalitarianism of this vision of language. Um, in your, uh, that's exactly right. That's a good summary. Yeah. Um, in your fourth chapter, you look at intersectional feminist theory through Wittgenstein's warning about the craving for generality, or alternately, the contempt of the particular case. What were the three features of this craving for generality or contempt of the particular case? And how can it help us to navigate what you consider the impasse in feminist theory? Oh, you know, that question is really quite tricky to do in a <laughs> short time. I will just simply say, uh, I use, remember that that chapter is called Thinking Through Examples. So first of all, I use a certain kind of quest for the ultimate in theory of intersectionality as my example. Um, it's meant to invite people to look at other kinds of theory and see if they do the same sort of thing. Essentially, the issue is there are philosophical reasons for this, which I cannot go into here, but they are in the book and so on. Um, essentially, the, for Wittgenstein, philosophers and other people, I would say, in the humanities make a huge mistake if they uh, fall for the what you call the uh, craving for generality. And what is that? It's essentially an effort to say that to do a good theory, it has to be true for all, absolutely all cases that could fall under this concept. So it's another version of what we've already mentioned. Uh, for literary critics, and I'm making this very short here, but for literary critics, this has always felt like an impossible thing. Look, people do the four, three or five chapters on on some author, and then they say something about modernism. Clearly, I mean, how can study of three writers be true for all cases of modernism? It never is. And it's always given lit some literary critics a kind of feeling of guilt or not being sufficiently either theoretically grounded or empirically grounded or something. But that's because it's the wrong picture of what it is to do a certain kind of work. In literary criticism, we clearly work from, from examples. We read um, some texts very carefully, and what we come up with in our study of three modernist authors is, in my opinion, we're trying to map a certain area of a big terrain called modernism. We pick out some strands and say, here, these are important things to think about if you want to think about modernism. But they're not, they are their nature, not exhaustive. I don't see how you can, and I will say, I'm talking about modernism because my book on Ibsen was called Henrik Ibsen and the Birth of Modernism. So I know exactly how hard it is to do this. Um, you can never come up with an idea of modernism as uh, 
that would a, a concept of modernism that you could sustain by reading all modernist works and find no exceptions and so on it's undoable right and that's a kind of that's why i think all literary critics should warm to wittgenstein who essentially says it's the wrong method anyway you can never you have to begin with examples that's all you have to go on i'll skip the reasons why then he says that what you find among some philosophers is a contempt for the particular case because they yearn for the high theoretical abstraction that would be true for all the cases. And um, they they are too inspired by the, the methods of the natural sciences. This is particularly true, he says, for some philosophers. Um, and they want to come up with concepts that are, as it were, watertight, complete, all-encompassing, and so on. And I just submit to you, as I said, that hardly anyone in the humanities actually does that. So, um, but there is a sense that you have to, nevertheless, for example, in the case of intersectionality, or in the book I wrote called What is a Woman? I used the idea of the concept of woman, which for a while, well, now we're back into that debate, but for a while it was not, it was considered unusable because to say woman was to buy into traditional essentialism and so on, which if you think of meaning as use, it follows that you have noticed that feminists use the word woman differently from right-wing fundamentalists and uh, there really isn't an use is the opposite of anything to do with essences right so um but uh, to therefore say so what i'm arguing about in the case of intersectionality is intersectionality means that you have noticed that some people are oppressed or excluded or marginalized for more than one reason. They are, as it were, targeted by more than one exclusionary oppressive practice, racism, class, colonialism, you name it. Uh, there are eons of potential ways in which you could different oppressions can intersect in one person. That's why they're called intersectionality, one reason anyway. And I am, of course, totally in favor of that observation. It's true, and it's worthwhile studying. What I was arguing about was you can't study it by first trying to build up a definition of intersectionality that should hold for all possible cases of it, past and present. I mean, you get the case of, I don't know, a Filipina household worker in Norway versus um Latino builder in North Carolina versus, you know what I mean? It's like what concept could hold all this together in one? It, the only way is to build it up to a higher and higher level of abstraction that then loses sight of the very particular cases you were interested in to start with. So um, for me, that that that's a problem 
with how people picture theory going on. It's not a problem with the wish to investigate intersectional oppressions. It's a problem with why they think they need to have this incredibly high-level abstract theories in place to do so. And they can't but, therefore, in practice, show contempt for the particular case, which doesn't interest them because they need the theory. Yeah, I, I suppose you you said undoable, and I'm thinking of the example with modernism here, or um, maybe possible, but there, it would be such a bland kind of generality that it would be um, almost so far afield from what um, compels you to do the work in the first place, maybe. Well, I think that's true, too. I mean, it has enormous ramifications. And uh, it, it my, my chapter there it really expresses some of the stuff I discussed earlier in the book and shows what difference it makes in how you look at what the work of theory should be, what it's good for, what will count as theory, what is not worth doing, and so on. Right. Um, in one fascinating section, you talk about Archie Bunker, the fictional character from the 1970 show All in the Family, a reactionary, um, uh, sexist, misogynist, um, racist figure. In the um, modern thinkers, Paul DeMond and Stanley Cavell, an unlikely trio to be sure. Um, what was at stake in DeMond? and Cavell's competing interpretations of this Archie Bunker scene in which he's um, arguing with his wife, Edith, um, about shoelaces. And then he concludes, I believe the line is, "What? what's the difference, is his final question. And that sort of gives rise to Paul DeMond's riffing on um, this scene. Um, can you talk about their interpretation? You know, Archie Bunker, when I first moved to America, I had no idea who he was. But there was this sitcom in the 70s. Well, I didn't live here in the 70s, so I had no idea. Um, so there was this sitcom in the 70s, and Archie was this redneck conservative guy, and Edith was his long-suffering wife. And they had this conversation Um it goes like this about Edith comes carrying in his bowling shoes. And think of this, a wife carrying the bowling shoes. And then she asks him, Archie, how do you want me to lace these? Now, I don't know about your wife. Does she lace your shoes for you? I hope not. No, no. <laughs> but um, I have never offered to lace anyone's shoes, except if, not if they were over seven anyway. Um, but Archie, how do you want me to lace these? Archie says, through the holes, Edith, through the holes. And Edith, no, I mean, do you want me to lace them over or under? Archie, what's the difference? And this is, um, this is, uh, so then Edith tries to explain, well, if you lace them over, they show more. And Edith says, and Archie interrupts Edith, I didn't say, what's the difference? Explain it to me. I said, what's what's the difference, who the hell cares, and so on. Now, I just pick up on this because 
Paul Deman in a very abstract article, but very much frequently used, uses this what's the difference in a rather condescending way, in my opinion, the, the sort of what's the difference, Archie doesn't understand what he's saying, what if it were an Archie debunker like Derrida who said it instead, and so on, which I is supposed to be a joke. But I find it like, ha, why, how can you... How can you think that's that witty? Because for all Archie's flaws, he's a working class guy, and I don't feel that we intellectuals have any standing to say that when he says what the difference, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He knew perfectly well what he was saying. And I also think that if it if in that conversation it had been Derrida rather than Archie Bunker and using the same words in the same situation, they would have meant the same thing because it would be the same use. But um, the, the issue with uh, Stanley Cavell criticizes the man here. And the issue here is that Cavell takes the words desperately seriously and he pays attention to Edith. And he points out, as actually is true, that Edith is perfectly right. There is a difference between lacing over and lacing under. And it's quite obvious that Paul Demand doesn't even pay attention to that and he doesn't care. So he doesn't dwell for a second on Edith's, uh, you know, you could argue that for bowling, you need the shoes tied in a special way. And I have no idea whether lacing over or under is better for bowling, because I've never bowled. But, um, but I could, it's a perfectly relevant question. And the fact that Paul Demand takes no interest in it, for me, is there are more things at stake in it. But it shows a certain attitude to the ordinary and the everyday that I find problematic. And, of course, it's unfortunate that he dismisses Edith's expertise in these matters with, like, nothing doesn't even dismiss it. It's just not noticed. So for me, I think ordinary language philosophy teaches you to look at the use. And that means that you actually have to really learn about what it means to, in this case, lace over or lace under. Cavell knew. He tells us what it is. It's a little like looking at the bullfight and having no clue whether the bull is brave or cowardly. I mean, what are you looking at if you can't even tell that? Um, so, so it's the interest in how the words reveal the world, how words are intertwined with the world that you see so clearly in the lacing of the shoes, which the man is not interested in. He's just interested in that the, what's the difference? The difference cannot be grasped and it's endlessly displaced and so on. And this, from that we segue into a discussion of jokes and what does it mean when I and Cavell don't find demands pun on the Archie debunker funny and some people find it funny. That has to do with not sharing fully sharing a world of practices and uh, set, you know, avenues of intuitions and feelings and senses and so on. And 
So for me to read that text by Dumas with Cabell is also to show a kind of difference in philosophical spirit running. And that's what runs through the whole book. It's like ordinary language philosophy is very much a, a way of looking at things. It's a kind of spirit. It's not one method or one thesis. It's more a, a way of looking at problems, a way of setting them up, and a way of valuing the really astonishing work of language in the world. And I'm also hearing in, in the way that you're talking about Demand's description as, as condescending, and um, Cavell's is more kind of honoring or extending sympathy to this struggle to, um, as you say, mean what we say, um, that, that failure that we all kind of participate in. Mm -hmm. You discuss uh, the bad writing contest, which um, singled out bad academic writing, quote, unquote, in the late 1990s. Can you talk us through your thoughts about that contest and about arguments about clarity and difficulty in academic writing that persists uh, to this day? Well, you know, there's a lot one could say about that, but I would say simply um, there has been a great deal of writing, you know, ever since Marcuse, but you see it in Zizek, Judith Butler, a lot of people who think that clarity is somehow the same thing as what they call a transparent trans the belief that language is transparent which of course makes no sense to me since i think that language is use and practice how can a use and practice be transparent or not i've no idea but what they they are stuck in the picture of language as representation as a series of signs that are supposed to represent the world and if they criticize someone for believing that language is transparent they mean that that they think language seamlessly shows you the world with no friction or difficulties. Now, I'm not buying into that picture at all. So for me, that's uh, almost an, yeah, I, I, I don't want to go there. But there's generally a belief that, <laughs> first of all, of course, academics like to be impressive. And they have this terrible fear that if ordinary people could possibly understand what they were saying, then they can't be very advanced or intelligent or something. And um, we should not agree with that. But, you know, we should try to say what we care about passionately and with clarity in the hope that others can see what we see. That's my view. Now, as for this belief that difficult language is what critical theorists need, a critical thinker must have very difficult language. The idea is often as I show in the book, it's based on what one used to say. It's certain old debates about modernist poetry. You know, around 1960, when Marcuse was writing certain critiques of clarity in language, um, the idea was that 
modernist poetry was so difficult, no one could understand it. And then the count, and that was, of course, a Philistine critique of it. But then the counter argument was that the poet would say, I can only say it in these words. These are the exact words I need to say what I mean. And uh, the idea is that by making the reader slow down and pay painstaking attention to each word, then then you're making the reader do a certain work that's necessary for appreciating this kind of language. Now, I find that perfectly plausible if you are a modernist poet from around 1930 to 1960, right? But if you're a contemporary theorist, okay, if you are as good at, if you write as well as the best modernist poets, I'll grant you your case, just keep going. But most of us don't actually write like that. What they call difficulty is just clunky syntax, bad sentence structure, and a heap of obscure antecedents, so you never can tell what the it and the this refers to, and so you can't follow the argument, right? That's not... um, So I'm... My view is that some kinds of thought is so difficult in itself that there's absolutely no reason to make it more obscure than it needs to be. I think Albert Einstein said, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. And that is my view. I don't believe in simplification. I don't believe in sort of dumbing down things, because I think people who need to understand something are willing to make the effort. But I also don't believe in making it look more difficult than it has to be just so you can look impressive. That That is not, uh, because that's also, I mean, my grad students are often terrified that when they begin, that uh, this is something that I know you're interested in, this idea that graduate school, as I have seen it in America, seems to foster fear. People write from a position of fear, fear of being judged. And of course, I'm not blaming them. There's the job market, or rather the lacking job market. There's the, there's the before that, there's the committee to judge your dissertation. There's like every pressure. I understand that. But you don't write well when you write from fear, because you will spend two thirds of your time hedging and protecting yourself against imagined critiques to the point that you lose touch with what was original and good in your original impulses, because your original impulses are now not worked on and refined, but hidden under like three feet of hedges and kowtowing and it's almost like writing from a position of fear makes you hide yourself. But you can't become an impressive intellectual if you do that. You need a voice. So when I teach my students, I, I hope to train them in having a voice. Um, I, I suppose some defenders of of difficult writing um, would would also return to that argument that you made um uh, or that you were summarizing that you were critiquing about the common sense um the critique of, of common sense like 
if we're using um, language and we're trying to um, push back against the implicit um, sexism, racism that that is carried forward in language, there's going to be um, uh, a difficulty for a reader because we're jamming the frequency. You know, we're overturning. Well, but the thing is, I, I just have, I write about this at length, but I just have to say that, first of all, there is absolutely nothing in ordinary language philosophy that tells you to agree with whatever you take common sense is. Um, also, secondly, it's amazing that people are so clear on what common sense is in that nowadays, there's a lot of statements that pass for perfect common sense, like, for example, I don't know, um, sexism is bad, colonialism is bad, everyone is paying attention. I mean, if common sense is what people, oh, we're not racist here, racism is bad, this is currently common sense, but that doesn't mean anything, does it? It means that people say things or whatever that they can't possibly practice or they show in practice they don't mean or they really mean it, but that's not what we want to know and so on. I think the idea, first of all, Common sense, to my mind, is a very nebulous concept. I, it's usually set up to be, I mean, Marcuse is very explicit about that. It's the ordinary people, the chap in the street, he says, who have common sense, whereas the philosopher is able, of go, able to go beneath the surface in a critical way. You need specialist philosophical concept to think critically. And common sense is just like a stand-in for a disdain for what ordinary people have to say. And I find that deeply anti-democratic. And I also think that you will find that ordinary language, as you can hear it in the street or in a lot of literature, actually, will contain depths if you bother to look. Just look at Edith Bunker, lacing over, lacing under, actually means something. It's not just, and I don't know what it has to do with common sense. It's just so that the idea of common sense as something like like a compact majority holds that and we are against it, is a bit of an ideological fiction and it's, it's self-serving for intellectuals that only we can provide the concepts that will make ordinary people ordinary people's uncritical ways of being in the world acceptable. I will say some ordinary people may be uncritical, others are not. And in the same way, whatever might count for com as common sense will sometimes be reactionary and we must oppose it, but sometimes they may be right. This thing is... There is no one thing that's common sense. It depends on who says it. What statements of common sense is it we're supposed to be against or in favor of? They never say. It's just this compact, vague idea. So I mean, I really don't want to join a kind of piling up on the a kind of intellectual Mandarin position. Now, I will say that when it comes to difficulty, 
I will just encourage people to first read Wittgenstein's in, uh, Philosophical Investigations, which has super simple language, but you still don't know what he's doing. It's hard. Or you can then go on to Carell's The Claim of Reason, which really should give you something to struggle with. They, I have no... I have no stylistic norm. I write in a particular way because that is my voice and I can only express myself if I find the utmost clarity in each sentence. But I think Cavell is trying to do that. It's just he was so original and wanted to say so many things at the same time that he sometimes produces sentences that are over 200 words long. And it's not clear what he's saying in every sentence all the time. So, um, but the idea that difficulty should be intrinsically more critical or radical than a certain kind of simplicity it all depends, doesn't it? Some kinds of difficulty are obscurantist Mandarin nonsense, and others are actually necessary and radical. Same thing for simplicity. Um, for what it's worth, I enjoyed the experience of reading The Revolution of the Ordinary, in particular, the way you engage with complex intellectual problems while always keeping the stakes of the analysis in focus. And I think this would be a great time to turn to your approach to writing. Um, do you uh, have certain revising and drafting practices that you found reliable? Um, are there uh, tricks or um, practices that you turn to when you're working on academic prose? Oh, it's like, for me, it's just getting some sentences down on the page and then looking at them, it's attention to particulars. I use the program called Scrivener for everything I write because there I can have chunks of pieces. Like I can't work in Word because you end up with millions of documents and I don't have an overview, but Scrivener allows me to have like a binder and you can have snippets up next to one another. And it's... Um, I try to write down some things. I find first drafts appallingly hard to do, but I try to overcome that by developing a note-taking practice so that I take short notes on things I've read or try to write. Sometimes if I'm stuck, I say, I will write 10 minutes just without stopping stream of consciousness on this topic and then see if there's anything. I mean, just in that I could produce two or three pages and there may be two or three phrases that tell me, oh yeah, that's not bad. So I keep those two or three phrases and then I have something to build on. Um, and, and I work with hunches. I don't have an outline when I begin. Outlines, how can you have an outline if you're really doing an investigation? You don't know what you're going to find. It's just hard. So I begin in one end where I feel I have a passage or a, a bit that I can say something about. And then I don't know what it's part of. So I spend my a lot of time trying to figure out what exactly am I actually, what's my question? What am I writing about? Then I write a bit more. And then I always struggle with the frame because that's where I have to say in the end, 
what is this about, you know? So I begin with snippets and bits and pieces and try to figure out what it is my topic is. And after some horrible, painful, endless time with that, finally it seems to come together more. So the first, well, the first third of any project is just ghastly and very hard, but then you just have to persist. And of course, I believe in writing a bit every day, but I can't always do it. I don't practice it half as well as I believe. But take maybe a five or 10 minute note a day if you can. Like you may have read something that isn't even your current topic, but it struck you. Try to write like five lines on why it struck you. Hey, I saw that sitcom so struck by this scene, which made me think of this. And then if you have a some kind of database to put such notes in, it's amazing what you can find if you then vaguely search in it uh, once you have some notes. You, I know you teach a graduate course titled Writing is Thinking, and you have three things you emphasize in that course. Can you tell us what those three things are? Well, you know, when <laughs> when you ask me that, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'll fail my own exam here. But actually, it is. Uh, this is a course I've been teaching for some while, and I'm teaching it again in the fall. Um, I this, We do much more than this. But I think, first of all, I begin with focus on your sentences. That is attention to particulars. That's Wittgenstein's slogan. We don't actually see what we're saying. We're so used to churning out a sentence. But if you start, so people write 200 words for me, I edit it. Then in class, I usually pick one sentence from each person's thing and we project it up and I pick one and I ask people, now, why did I pick that one? What can we see in this sentence? People love that exercise because it's so hands-on and you realize that you wrote something that you took to be just probably normal. And it's full of stuff that either confuses people or raises more questions than you thought it did. Or that, and, and to have that discussed and then we edit together. And what you discover then is you can't do it if you don't, you have to have the author there because sometimes the sentence is like, you can't edit it if you don't know what the person really would like to do with the sentence. So you have to ask, well, were you trying to say this? Or were you trying to do that? And so on. So it goes to show that the author is crucial. That's first thing. So focus on attention to particular. And it's not just sentences, it's paragraphs too. And then it's like, do pick a topic for your writing that you care about. You really need to be passionate about it because you're going to write your dissertation for years. And later, it's going to have to be a book if you're lucky. And, you know, if you do it because... Well, you really have to want to find out everything about this thing. And then the third thing is to try to write from a place of courage. Let's find ways to build down the fear, because fear destroys writing. It just does. It's like you don't sound like yourself at all. And, you know, you want to write something that someone... 
Look, I have been on committees. This is terrible, but we've had job searches where we've had 450 applicants. How can any committee read more than the first page or two of any first quick pass? If you can't make an impression on page one as having a voice, you're going to just sound blurry, like just so find your voice and you can't find it if you're afraid. That's that's um, a wonderful advice, I think. Um, finally, I want to ask what your next project is. Are you working on a scholarly project or developing a course? Well, I'm always working on tons of things. That's why, God, I'm always behind. I have a, uh, my, my real academic project is a project on the new. What it is, the, how does something new come into the world? I've written a piece on Cavell, you know, on Wittgenstein and Thomas Kuhn. You know, Kuhn is interested interesting because he talks about paradigm shifts. So paradigm shift is one way of thinking about how does something radically new come into the world, right? And Wittgenstein is interesting because he shows us in his sections on aspect seeing that seeing something new is totally ordinary. It's something we do all do it all the time. The issue is for, but of course, most of the time when I we say or see something new, it's not world shattering and other people might have seen it too, but it's, the structure of seeing the new is ordinary. Then the question, and so then Kuhn with his paradigm shifts talks about big news. And the question that interests me is, first of all, people have misread Kuhn a lot because he was deeply Wittgensteinian at the time, and he becomes clearer when you see that. I have published a piece from that work in um something called the Journal of Cavellian Studies, just because I wanted it out in the world. But then <laughs> what's interesting in this project is, of course, a big question, which is how do you ever persuade anyone to change their minds? Like here someone has a whole new theory of relativity or whatever, or of uh, oxygen instead of phlogiston or whatever they had before. You know, some people, scientists go to their graves never being persuaded by the new theory. And, of course, we live in a world where it seems impossible to persuade anyone of anything. But then, like, how do people come to embrace a new thought? Because they do it new to them, if you see what I mean. Because we do do it occasionally, or maybe we never do. In any case, but I haven't had enough. So that's my intellectual project. But I'm also working in Norway on finishing a book, and I have a deadline in a month on um, Norwegian culture in the 1950s. It's been my project um, at the National Library, and I really have to get this thing done. And then I'm teaching a new course in the fall, not writing is thinking, but my other course is a new undergraduate course on um, three women philosophers from, from the middle of the 20th century. And two of them I've never really taught much, namely Simone Weil, Iris Murdoch, and Simone de Beauvoir. And I think that should be fascinating 
the topics will be attention and action. Well, that, that's really exciting. I love Simone Day especially. Um, that's... Yeah, I wrote a piece on her for the London Review of Books a, few, a couple of years ago, and that really inspired me to um, look further. So I thought, and I, there are some of her pieces on attention that I have used in teaching. So I thought I'll try to design an undergraduate course where we really try to pay attention and therefore read slowly and do some serious thinking, but not by piling up the pages, but paying attention. So I suppose that's a light motif, then pay attention to particulars. But then if they talks about attention, she's also deeply political and believes in action. And Iris Murdoch used to be a communist, and she read Simone Weil and learned a lot about so for Iris Murdoch, attention becomes an ethical um, category. And then you have uh, Simone de Beauvoir, who's thinking about action in, and particularly about action in relation to others and otherness seems to be a kind of counterpoint to the two others. But there are such connections between them, Beauvoir and Vey, from the same moment in French intellectual history. Murdoch is deeply inspired by Vey and having written a book on Sartre and existentialism, Murdoch begins by being kind of existentialist. Then she becomes a more Veilian Platonist, if that's possible. <laughs> so it will be an unpretentious course, but I, I haven't designed it yet and time is flying. So I have plenty to do, but luckily I I do practice what I say. I do work on stuff I think is fascinating and I'm really interested in it. And hopefully, given enough time, I'll finish the projects. Yeah, those are really exciting. They seem to share um, a, a commitment that Revolution of the Ordinary has, which is this interest in the shared ways we make meaning. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And the the ways in which beginning with examples, attention to particulars, and understanding that whatever we say, we say to someone, even if you stand alone in a mountain and shout to the sky, the very fact of having a language is something you can only learn from others, with others. So um, I, I think uh, those are kind of key elements in what I like to think about. <laughs> That's awesome. We'll look forward to to those projects. I'm I'm looking forward, hopefully, to being able to see that syllabus at some point. Um, uh, write to me when I it will be ready by the 28th of August. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast, Tora. And write to me about where and when I can hear it and so on. But I have to run now. So thank you. It was fun to talk to you.